0: Hello everyone, this is Brad Thomas with The Ground Up. I'm back here again this week and I am honored to have a very distinguished uh, guest today on our podcast, uh, James Sullivan. James is the Managing Director uh, and REIT Analyst, of course, with BTIG. He leads the REIT Research Coverage Team there and is responsible for research across the apartment, hotel, and regional mall subsectors. So uh, J- James, or Jim, I guess we'll say, thanks for joining us today.
1: Okay, happy to be here with you.
0: Great. Well, Jim, uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're taking the time uh, to join us today. Uh, you're, we're, I'm going to touch on two sectors that seem to be uh, um, really some, two of the most opportunistic property sectors today that we cover. And with your extensive knowledge of these sectors, I really uh, look forward to uh, gaining some insight. Uh, and that 's in within the mall sector, of course, uh, which has been really beaten down and then in the multifamily sector, which has also uh, been beaten down so um, let 's just start with the mall sector if we could. Um, I know you know we all know Simon is the big uh, gorilla in the room uh, with the uh, with the dominating scale advantage, and I guess the you know the balance sheet as well, but at a high level how do you how do you uh, think about the mall sector today, uh, you know, from an investing perspective, why, why would you want to invest in, in the mall sector today, given what we're seeing right now, you know, seven months or so into the COVID-19 environment?
1: Well, it's a, um, I think we have to start with the uh, recognizing that there's really been a bifurcation in terms of mall space between you know, very simplistically, I'll call it the A mall space and say the C mall space. Um, and C mall space will be um, uh, malls which where the average sales productivity, that is retailer sales per foot productivity, ranges from, say, 300 on the low end to maybe 425, 450 on the upper end. Um, but there are a couple of um, mall reads that have portfolios. Um, that are really focused in that that tranche in terms of sales productivity with average sales per foot of about $375 a foot. In contrast, the AMOL space, which in the public in the US, US public REIT market um, is really focused in Simon, you mentioned, Mace Rich, Taubman, ticker TCO, which is um, un- under agreement to be acquired by Simon, um, although there's some dispute as to the terms and timing. Um, that'll be resolved, we think, before the end of the year. But um, in contrast, those companies, their sales per foot, on average, is ranging from the mid-600s a foot um, uh, up to 800-plus per foot. Um, and they'll have several malls in their portfolio where the sales productivity is over $1,000 a foot. So you have you have with that that A-quality product, these are the malls that all of the better retailers in America want to be Want to be in, have to be in, essentially. So if you're Apple, or if you're Lululemon, or if you're Peloton, or you know a new tenant like a Warby Parker, everybody knows where the more productive centers are. Um, this is a matter of, of, of uh, that is that is well known by the tenants and the leasing reps. Um, and if you're a retailer that wants to have a, a a store fleet, let's say you want to have a brick and mortar fleet of only 100 locations or 200 locations and complement to digital presence with that brick and mortar location, you wanna have stores which are gonna be solidly profitable as opposed to more marginal locations and centers where the productivity is say 350 a foot. So what we've seen, and, and, and I think it's important to recognize that when you look back over the last five years, take a company like Simon as an example, You know, we've been through the quote-unquote retail apocalypse, but if you compare their metrics from 2015 to 2019, occupancy pretty stable at about 95%. Average rent per foot on average has increased at a compound average growth rate of about 4%. That's in line with growth, um, you know, sales productivity over that same period of time. Um, And um, so in many respects, their metrics have held up pretty well. The one issue that um, you know, everyone is concerned about is the transition from you know, a traditional mall tenant base, which might be free anchor department stores and then a, a roster of you know, traditional apparel, footwear, accessory brands. Um, we've clearly seen um, both, both segments of retail, the, the department stores and the specialty stores struggle over the last five years. Um, and there's a whole host of reasons um, for that. Department stores have been struggling for a long time, well before, well before e-commerce became a, a factor. But the specialty stores have been struggling because we have, relatively speaking, very low inflation in the economy, so they don't have a lot of pricing flexibility. There is more competition, um, and those retailers who came into this period of heightened competition with weaker balance sheets which many of the companies which were owned by private equity ownership had more leveraged um, balance sheets. That's where the greatest failure is. Um, um, so you are seeing an elevated level of failure. Um, and, you know, COVID, of course, has, has intensified that. At the same time, good portfolios have no problem replacing failing tenants. And the Simon portfolio, the Street portfolio, they're, you know, the best indicators of that.
0: Yeah, and I guess I want to um, ask you in terms of the um, number of, I guess, all malls reach have suspended uh, or cut their dividend. Um, In terms of, I guess, Simon, particularly, how do you see this dividend policy going forward um, with the company? And, um, you know, I know that was, um, I know they did cut in the last recession, but they, uh, I think, rewarded shares as well. Um, but how do, you, how do you see Simon's dividend policy going forward?
1: Well, I think Simon has made clear, and they, they discussed this in some detail at the time, they kind of gave the heads up that they were, gonna, they were likely to cut the dividend. They basically said they wanted to cut the dividend or they were cutting the dividend to the rate that they felt they had to pay out under REIT guidelines. Um, and so that was the reason for the cut. You know, I didn't mention, but pre-COVID, if you go back over that same 2015, 2019 period, their compound average growth rate in their dividend was better than 5%. Um, it may have actually been 7%, but it's, it's, it's mid to upper, uh, upper single digits. That was their average annual growth rate in the prior five-year period. Their payout ratio, nonetheless, was fairly low. They were generating excess free cash flow that they were retaining and reinvesting of over a billion dollars a year. Um, and they are an A-rated credit, so they have a tremendous access to, to the debt markets. Um, I think one issue this year that has made it a little more challenging for um, Simon is that they have agreed to acquire Taubman. And the Taubman acquisition will create, put more debt on the balance sheet. Um, they have had some dispute with Taubman and. You know, my guess is this is going to be resolved with some adjustment in the pricing, uh, but they are heading to court in the fourth quarter in Michigan um, uh, to uh, to have a hearing on their, you know, the facts. Um, but there's no doubt there, you know, that, I'll say there's no doubt. My, my guess, my assumption is that the deal will close but at a lower price. But nonetheless, Simon will have more debt. And um, they agreed their deal with Tob in pre-COVID. Um, so obviously they're paying a price that, now, if they were able to renegotiate the deal today, the price would obviously be somewhat lower. Um, and um, they don't have as strong a cash flow as they had uh, prior to COVID. Nonetheless, I don't think there's a balance sheet issue uh, for Simon at all. And I think going forward, given the size and the margins, bear in mind their EBITDA margin is about 80%. Um, it's exceptional. Um, and so, you know, they're going to have taxable income and... Um, you know they're going to have to pay a dividend, um, and um, you know they've reset the dividend to the level that that matches their their uh, presumed um, uh, required payout for this year.
0: Right. And last question on that mall topic, and Simon specifically. You know, I know you've covered this, but they Simon has uh, made a quite a few. I'll, I'll call them little bets, and little meaning some of these deals they they've done to with authentic brands to partner up to buy some retailers. Um, What are your thoughts about that? Do you think that's kind of going a little too outside of their circle of competence? Or do you think that's strategic in nature? Uh, What are your thoughts along those those lines?
1: Well, it's certainly going outside of their historical, you know, realm of investment to to make an investment in in, in a retail operation. That is not what they've done. Um, Typically, they've dealt with their tenants on an arm's length basis, totally impartial. Um, And I I think um, if they had their druthers, if you will, if I can put it that way, they would continue to do business that way. Um, The deals they've done, they've done a couple of different things. Um, They've done kind of some investment in kind of new formats and new uses. you know, e-gaming is one area, for example, where they made an investment, but very small investment. And these are investments, in, and as you may know, authentic brands, for example, bought Sports Illustrated. So Simon has this idea of actually combining Sports Illustrated, e-gaming, and sports generally um, as a uh, an area for activity in the mall, as a, as a, as a new use that would that would particularly broaden the appeal to a younger consumer. Uh, all mall owners wanna make sure they, 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 they increase their share of the millennial spend. The millennials are the, you know, the, the segment that's a little more likely to be willing to go online to shop, and malls wanna make sure that they can bring them into the mall with these new uses. So, so that's clearly a strategic investment in, into a, a format of quote, unquote, broadly speaking, entertainment. And when you think about what's going to replace the traditional three anchors in a mall, bear in mind that each anchor typically would be about twenty percent of total mall square footage. Um, if you take out a, a one hundred fifty thousand square foot J.C. Penney or Sears, what we are seeing is in many walls it, you know and there's a cluster of broadly speaking entertainment, um, and that entertainment might be theaters it might be it might be active um, dining. Um, video activity, like a Dave and, Dave and Buster's. Um, or it might be, broadly speaking, you know, sporting activity, athletic activity. So replacing a, a JCPenney with, um, with a gym, which was a very successful thing to do, obviously pre-COVID, but in, clearly post-COVID, that's a, a use which has been challenged. Nonetheless, long-term, assuming we get to the other side of this, I think fitness and sports will be a bigger component of the mall going forward. So you replace a JCPenney with a gym, the Dick's Sporting Goods. You've had sporting goods in the mall historically when Sears had a, had a healthy sporting goods business. It's been a long time, but um, you know, outside, of, outside of the occasional department store, sporting goods has not been a major component in the tenant base. Bringing Dick's in changes that. So you get gyms, you get Dicks, you combine that with Lululemon and Peloton and you know Athletic Wear and the Juice Bar and what have you. You're getting, if you will, the clustering of a, of an activity, which is increasing a share of the consumer's dollar, appeals to a younger consumer, but really across all age groups. When you have gyms, and you know I'm down here in Naples, Florida, and you know there's a very broad cross section of people who go to gyms here. So entertainment is one. emerging cluster at one end of the mall. Um, And the other point I'd make in fitness is the other. The other point important to bear in mind too is that the traditional mall used to have a very low ticket food court type of offering for food and beverage, where you might have a Chick-fil-A or an Orient Express or a Sparrows. The average spend might be $10 per consumer. If you replace that with a Cheesecake Factory you know, you're getting into a, a retailer that, that sit down, tablecloth, has a liquor license, and the average ticket might be $30 to $50 per consumer. Um, so you're seeing an upgrading of food and beverage that's helping to keep people at the mall. It's helping to, draw, in some markets, draw people to the mall. And it's certainly increasing the mall share of the food and beverage dollar spend in the zip codes where they operate. So that's an important new development as well.
0: Great. Well, uh, Jim, I appreciate that, and I'm going to switch over real quick before, uh, before uh, I get. I want to finish this with um, with the multifamily sector. Uh, I think you've got six or seven companies. i was just uh, checking here to see, you know, Avalon Bay, Camden Equity Residential, Essex, IRET, um, UDR. So you've got a you've got a quite a few number of of uh, multifamily REITs in your coverage spectrum. Um, and we, you know, we cover all those names as well. Um, obviously they have different business models, but can you kind of touch, I guess, high level on, you know, what are the opportunities they, obviously these shares have been beaten down for, you know, for, for really a variety of reasons. Um, but what do you, what do you see in terms of the opportunity to deploy, to deploy capital into these, uh, these REITs today, these multifamily REITs?
1: Well, I think, Brad, if I put my contrarian cap on, and maybe I've had it on all interviews since I just talked about Simon and the mall players, but if we think about what's going on in the multi-family space, there's been, I would say, two broad themes this year. One is um, post-COVID investors have been uh, underweighting what we call the coastal REITs, like Avalon Bay and Equity Residential, and they've been instead redeploying and overweighting those reads that are focused, broadly speaking, in the Sunbelt markets, companies like MAA and Camden. So MAA and Camden have outperformed, um, Avalon Bay and EQR have underperformed. Um, and then, so that's one broad theme, uh, the Coastal versus Sunbelt theme and featured featuring primarily the large cap companies. But the other theme is that investors, in light of kind of the underperformance of big players like Avalon Bay and EQR, have also been going a little bit further afield and looking at some small cap apartment rates that maybe never really got on their radar screen before. And a company like IRET, which we cover and have a buy rating on, headquartered or operated uh, out of Minneapolis, and primarily a kind of upper Midwest focused portfolio. That's been a part of the country which has held up pretty well Um, early on this year. Um, that part of the country had low levels of infection. Um, Most recently, of course, their levels of infection are higher. However, the response of the governments in these locations has been less severe. It's not been known for lockdowns, which of course occurred with great deal of severity in New York and San Francisco and LA. Um, So um, the two themes are, you know, you can kind of go off the, the roadmap and look at a small company like an IRET which has been the best performing apartment read altogether this year. Um, and if you're gonna focus instead on the larger cap names, more liquidity, um, uh, you can continue to play the momentum and, and look at names like MAA or Camden, or our choice in fact is to, is to say, hey, we're now in October, it's not far from November, as we all know, this is a time when investors should start looking into 2021 for emerging trends or maybe rotation. And Avalon b and EqR have underperformed materially. they're selling at very large discounts to net asset value, um, probably on average, depending upon whose estimates you use probably about a 20 percent discount to NAV. Um, they've underperformed MAA by um, depending on the month you look at it anywhere from you know 12 to fifteen percent on a year- to date basis um, and um, at some point over the first half of 2021 we anticipate that um, workers are gonna start returning to the offices. That's a big topic, um, you know, um, how much the the New York office market may be permanently impaired or hurt by this. But um, uh, we are hearing a number of companies say, you know, they do think people are more productive at the office than they are at home. We are seeing a number of companies announce the return to the office, various points over the first half of next year. Um, and, uh, we're going to have a lot of deferred demand, which will be bunched up, in my view, by the first in the first half of the, in the middle of next year. You know, the graduating class of 2020 maybe didn't actually start their jobs in 2020. Um, instead, they were deferred to the first quarter of next year, or when the office would open up, similar to what happened back in 2008. So we think you're going to see a significant pent-up demand as employees return um, to the major urban centers. Um, Nonetheless, for the next quarter or two, you're gonna continue to see here about negative same-store NOI in these big urban markets. But investors who are looking through a a longer lens and who are looking at companies, big companies, strong balance sheets, proven management teams, and portfolios that historically have performed well, we think should look at companies like Avalon B and EQR. So we have buys on both of those companies. And whether it's first quarter or mid year or third quarter, people are going to be coming back to the city. And um, you're going to see, we think, a pretty significant reversal in pricing trends as a result.
0: Jim, you know, I know we're both on the East Coast here, and uh, I guess we're fortunate to be on the East Coast, but, you know, I look at uh, my friends on the West Coast, and specifically I'll refer to Essex uh, Residential. And their portfolio um, that is really uh, you know been an exceptional portfolio but given what we see on TV primarily you know what what's going on on the West Coast in Portland um, in some of these West Coast cities um, how do you kind of rationalize investing in those companies that have that significant West Coast um, concentration. Um, well, first of all,
1: just to say at the outset, we actually have a hold or a neutral rating on Essex. Um, uh, echo your points. Great company. Great management team. Excellent track record. And over long periods of time, um, the entire West Coast, from Seattle down to San Diego, has generally had a stronger rate of GDP growth than the rest of the country. Um, and um, whether that continues or not um, is obviously going to be a function, in part of whether there's reasonably priced housing or housing costs which they can, you know, uh, control somehow. Um, It's been a part of the country where there's been a lot of discussions about rent control over the last couple of years. And it's also um, all these cities um, are cities which are generally um, um, controlled by liberal politicians who are sympathetic to the idea of rent control. And so um, it's one of the reasons we've been, you know, we've had the neutral on Essex, um, and particularly in an election year. So we'll see how this plays out in the coming months. Nonetheless, when you look at the markets where um, new tech, life science, uh, social media, um, uh, growth and capital formation has been the strongest, it's been in places like San Francisco, in places like Boston and Cambridge. And... These are markets with high housing costs and high costs of living generally, but they are also markets where business formation and job growth has been very, very strong. Um, And, you know, the major tech companies are generally headquartered or centered in these markets, whether it's the West Coast or the East Coast as well. Um, And, um, you know, whether there's a a permanent damage to the job growth picture in San Francisco, um, you know, we're going to have to wait I think, until the first quarter next year. Cisco has always been a very, very volatile market in terms of apartment rents. Um, but it's also been, and i saying that, I'm looking over data that goes back 30 years. As long as we've had a public rate market and we have good data on San Francisco, it has had the most volatile apartment rents. Um, it's a small market. Um, uh, supply growth is limited in San Francisco, not so much in San Jose, but San Francisco it is. Um, And, you know, the market can move pretty significantly when it does move. Right now, it's moving down. Uh, And so um, we have to see the dust settle and for rents to stabilize before we can really pound the table on a portfolio that may be exclusively focused in those markets.
0: Great. Well, Jim, that's been great Uh, information. It's certainly been helpful for me and I'm sure our audience as well. And I will say... One one thing we we also have a common uh, interest in IRT IRET as well. Um, Mark Decker Jr. is doing a fantastic job, and uh, we were lucky to get in early there with that trade, and uh, we like what what he's been able to do there. So we have that common interest. And in, listen, I I want to thank you for your time and uh, jumping on this uh, this podcast today, and hopefully we can uh, we can do this again uh, more often. Obviously, we've got the third quarter. Uh, earnings coming up. So I know we're all going to be busy, but um, uh, hopefully we'll catch up after that point. So I want to thank you for your time today.
1: Okay, Brad, great to do it. Take care.
0: Thank you.